thing I've tried to optimize for in those long periods of just like nothing good is happening is try to find the small good things that will happen. And I think celebrate those, figure out how to make those carry you on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 21 Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Today, I sit down with the amazing Laura Speakerman, COO and co-founder of Alloy, an identity decisioning platform that has built the command center for identity that covers the compliance and fraud fighting needs for banks and fintechs. Founded in 2015, Alloy now serves over 200 clients, has raised over $150 million in equity, and recently became a unicorn valued at $1.35 billion. Some of their top investors include Lightspeed, Bessemer, Flourish, Clocktower, ENIAC, and Primary. Now in this wonderful conversation, Laura and I discuss challenges and opportunities of working with sensitive client data and why their approach has become Alloy's competitive advantage why her role as a co-founder and company leader changes every three to six months, and how Laura manages to adapt to this reality, collecting customer feedback, and how Alloy stays close to the client, reflections from tough company moments, and dealing with rejection back at the beginning of Alloy, and how she managed to keep going and maintained a relentless optimism along the way, lessons and reflections for aspiring entrepreneurs, and just a whole lot more. Hope you enjoy this great conversation with Laura Speakerman. Well, Laura, how are you today? Thank you for joining us on the 21 Leaders Podcast, a a brand new podcast to talk to business leaders of the 21st century. Thanks for having me, Miguel. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited. So it's it's been a it's been a while. Obviously, we we spoke over a year ago back at the Wharton FinTech podcast. A lot has changed, yeah. right? A, a lot has changed for Alloy, uh, particularly. You know, I know that this is not the most important thing, but it is worth mentioning that you just close a a new funding round, a pretty big one, and and now you've. Uh, Join the unicorn category. Yeah. Uh, so con- massive, massive congrats on that. Thank you. But also, you you tell us what what else has changed over the last, I guess, year, year and a half at, at Alloy. Yeah, it's been sort of a continuation. I think of the trends we saw in 2020. So if if 2020 was sort of all about COVID and the effect that had, obviously, on you know the country and the the world broadly. For digital financial services, it was an accelerant, and we certainly saw that in our business. I think what we saw is that once people decided to use digital financial services because of the pandemic, so my mom is an example where she started using Venmo during the pandemic, 
you're not going to go back, right? So once you've sort of learned how to use those digital channels, open accounts online, you're not going to sort of go back to, to bank branches. And if you do go to bank branches, you still want sort of a as much of a um, real-time kind of digitalized experience. And so that's really been the, the kind of continuation, I think, that we've seen into 2021, where our business has just has grown. The other thing we've seen, of course, is that embedded fintech is still the kind of topic du jour, I think. And we're, we're seeing more and more of that as expected, where there are increasing opportunities to leverage financial services, you know, interchange payments, lending, whatever you can think of and, and put it into other businesses. So, you know, if we have to track kind of, there's like the unbundling, rebundling, unbundling, rebundling, you know, who I can't sort of keep track of which inning we're in, but we're definitely seeing the proliferation of digital financial services, regardless of what shape or form it takes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're seeing more and more super app-esque yep. fintechs right out there. Uh, so let, let's take a bit of a step back and maybe for those in the audience that do not know, tell us a bit about Alloy and your core services. And also, you know, maybe talk about the, the challenges and opportunities because you do deal with sensitive personal information. Sure. Yeah. Alloy is an identity decisioning platform. So we help our clients, which are generally regulated financial services institutions, both banks and fintech companies, manage all of their identity needs. So think of that as KYC, AML, risk and fraud, all in an API platform that lets you manage how you make those decisions. And really, initially, that was focused on onboarding. So letting a, a consumer or a small business open an account, credit card, bank account, whatever it might be. And increasingly, we're working on helping our clients make decisions throughout the life cycle of that customer. So getting a credit card after a year into your banking relationship, or helping our clients make decisions on high-risk transactions, for example, that their customers might be doing. Sensitive data is really critical, both for us and our clients, um, and, and of course, the end customers. We take it super seriously. I think we have from the beginning, which has been a little bit of a competitive advantage for us because we, from sort of day zero, had to contemplate getting our SOC 2 in order. We had to pass all sorts of um, data vendor audits. So think about your sort of credit bureau audits where they, they check what you're doing with their data, their data, even though they sometimes aren't potentially as careful with your data as they should be. They certainly put us through the ringer. And so we've, we've really been sensitive to that from day one, but we also view it as a competitive advantage. We work with our clients to ensure that they have the access they need, that their bank partners, for example, if they're a fintech company, their bank partners or the regulators have the access they need to the data, but keeping it super safe and secure in the meantime. Yeah, because you're working with fintechs, banks, community banks, you, know, you name it, but yep. you did start with uh, smaller fintechs, but the reality is that mm -hmm. they're working with their, their um, issuer bank. So they, at the end of the day, it's the same type of onboarding compliance that a big bank would have, right? Yeah. The nice part of, I think, if you're a fintech company working with a partner bank, and if you have a really good relationship, and if you both are on board that the customer experience is really important, you can have a better onboarding experience than with a big bank because you can sort of tailor it more. So you can say, I don't want, you know, I want to make sure that people aren't going to a manual review process unless they really need to. So I want to automate as many decisions as I possibly can. 
or I want to be able to validate more thin file customers. And that means including document verification earlier on. So there's a lot of ways that I think our clients can actually respond. Again, both fintech companies, community banks, and sort of the combination of those two can respond to the needs of the end customer more nimbly than a very large financial institution can. Understood. And, and so how big is the organization today? We are about 100 and almost 150 people. We just raised our Series C, so $100 million Series C, 150 people. So think about it from the culture point of view mm-hmm. and, and you know, organizationally speaking, what have been the biggest changes and more importantly, how have you adapted to, to a growing company? I guess the best way to describe it from my perspective has been that my job and I think many people's jobs at Alloy change now every three to six months. So the first four years at Alloy were slow, painful, you know, on the brink of kind of disaster periodically. And since we sort of hit our stride in 2018, 2019, that's been a different story. And the, the speed of change and the speed of growth has just made it so that every three or four months, our jobs change and it feels like everything breaks, right? Like everything kind of falls apart every three or four months because the process that you've just put in place, like the leader you just hired, the protocol you just established no longer works for the new reality. And so it's sort of thinking a few steps ahead and and understanding that, okay, now we're in hyper growth mode, things have to change. So I've had to adapt to that. I think everyone has had to adapt to that to, to some extent, but it also makes it for me, really fun. I, I like sort of the variety that that, that gives us. And, and so who do you worry? And I know this is going to be very specific depending on, on the, the function, mm-hmm. but how do you define those steps ahead, right? Who do you work with to kind of define those steps ahead? Yeah. You know, overall, I'm not sure that VCs deliver as much on the, um, the value add promise as, as they should. However, they do know what growth hypergrowth can look like. And so we've had we've been really fortunate to work with some investors who've had companies go through hypergrowth periods, right? So, you know, Bessemer is a great example. They have companies that look sort of like us in certain ways, like API platforms, SaaS companies that have gone public, right? And so they're always they can sort of look one or two or three steps ahead. They have mentors and EIRs there that they connect us with to say, okay, how does should your customer success team scale? What should your org chart look like? That's been really helpful to me. Canopy has a couple of companies. They, they let our series B. Canopy has a couple of companies that sort of look like us in certain ways. So similar, I've had, I've had great conversations with some of their executives who can help inform us what we should be thinking about. And now with Lightspeed, who just let our series C, I think that's even more true. You know, they, again, we're less at the point where we're looking for super specific advice on or like an introduction to a customer, for example, we're at the point where we're just trying to figure out like, how does this go from 150 people to 300 people? How does this go from X dollars in revenue? You know, how do we double or triple that? So it's people who've done it, seen it before. It's probably the one area where kind of pattern matching can be quite helpful. Yeah. The, the more I, I look at it and go through, I think that Sometimes the best thing a VC can do is just introduce you yes. to the right person yes. at the right time, right? Totally. That's right. It's introduce me to the people that you know that have been through this before. And that's a huge value add because they can say, okay, this company looks kind of like this one you know, a year ago. Let me make that connection. And I think it's a careful calibration. It's not helpful for me to talk to 
generally speaking, it's not helpful for me to talk to people, leaders at public companies, for example. It's just too far ahead from where we are. I love talking to people who are either my peers or just a little step ahead of me. And that's been true throughout the existence of Alloy is that that's the best possible and most productive conversation I can have is with someone who's just like an inch ahead. Laura, so one of the most successful traits of great companies is that they listen to the customer, right? And oftentimes, or whenever they can, they actually adapt based on that customer feedback. I'm sure that's something that you're doing, right? But over the years, what has been the ideal way, the best way that works for Alloy to collect uh, customer feedback and then integrate it into the organization? Yeah, we are super fortunate, I think, first and foremost, to have a CEO who will not give up his title as head of product. I've tried many times over the years to ask him to relinquish it, but for better and for worse, that means he is living and breathing what our customers want, what they're asking for, what they say they want, but what we think they actually want. And so he is super in tune with what's going on. He really served as our, you know, for the first, again, few years of the company, our sales engineer, our solutions consultant, our implementations person. And so he's deep, deep in the issues that our client were facing and how we might be able to help solve them. And he still is. So he regularly joins calls with our clients to understand how we might be building better products for them, how they could be using their products better. And I'm sort of along for the ride. I listen, but he's kind of the genius who can take what a client is saying they need when it comes to ACH fraud and understand exactly what they mean. You know, they might say they need this tool, but really we think they actually need this other thing. And he can kind of translate that into a product that is usable. So we're really lucky. I think the other part is we've, we've really designed our organization. Again, it has some downsides, but I think we've designed our organization to be as close to the client as they can, not in sort of a relationship schmoozy wine dine way. Of course that has its merits, but it's really what we want to do is make sure that we, regardless of how much you pay us every month, that you use fullness out of your product that you're supposed to, and that you love it. And we don't all, you know, there are definitely times where we've fallen short, but I think overall that's been when we're most successful. And when I hear from CEOs of our customers that there's like, you guys are just like, you know, holding our hands through these fraud events that have happened, for example. And so I think staying close to them and, and really being advisors on how to use a product more than sellers, you know, for the product has been, has really paid off. So uh, maybe controversial question, is the client always right? The client, I believe, is usually right in the sense that they identify a need. I don't think they're always right in terms of the solution to that need. I think a lot of, especially financial institutions that have an existing tech stack, right, or or have sort of an existing set of vendors that are even in the world of possibility for them, have to sort of think in terms of the types of vendors that exist that they could plug in today and we are seeing, especially with fintech customers, that that kind of world gets larger. There are just more types of solutions, more things that are possible. And so often they say they one thing, but they're sort of not yet aware that there's other, there's sort of a different way we could be doing things altogether. If you think about sunsetting two different systems in favor of one, for example, you don't just have to replace one that plugs into your old system. You know, there are just ways to sort of think about your, your tech stack differently. The other thing, the other thing we're doing that has been so far, 
really compelling, but we'll see how it shakes out in the end, is creating squads that are separate from our sales team, separate from our client success and solutions team, for example, so different implementation, solutions architect, all that, that are reporting straight into the CEO. And these are new product go-to-market squads. They're taking sort of the product, whether it's you know three quarters baked or fully baked, but either way, we don't know exactly what pricing, you know, sales process, implementation fully done looks like. We're still figuring that out. And we're saying, okay, we're going to have these squads that are sort of going to work together. They're like a startup within a startup and go ship this to our clients, to the world, get the right feedback. So be really, really thoughtful about the speed at which we can do things so we don't get bogged down as we grow our organization. And also so we can bring that feedback directly back to the product team and, and let them iterate. So you've gotten a little bit into organizational structure. Uh, let's talk about your team and, and specifically about your leadership approach. You know, I know offline we've talked about your leadership approach, and, and you know, I, I, th- I would love to hear a bit more about that. Um, you know, how would you describe yourself uh, as a as a business leader? I've evolved, I think, in a way that I've become more aware that I'm not an expert in basically anything. And my job is to hire great people and give them as much autonomy as I can and then give them resources, remove barriers, give them support organizationally, financially, whatever it is that they need, headcount to make their vision happen and then translate the goals of the company to them and sort of vice versa. So I view my role as really sort of this like non-specialized function that just removes any barriers there might be and lets you run with it. That means that I have to hire people who are smarter than me, more experienced than me, who are not going to learn anything from me about, you know, how to run a support organization. You're going to tell me that you're going to teach me that I'm not going to teach you anything about running a support organization. So it means you're not going to be able to hire people who are looking for mentorship and guidance in a specific area. They might learn about fundraising or company building or board relationships, but that that is a little bit of a, a limiting factor. And I'm generally hiring people who can come to me with their recommendation. They might, I love sort of people who are looking to collaborate and have conversations with me where we can spend 30 minutes and then come out with a decision together that we both feel good about. But I'm not looking for me to make the decision and you to go execute. This is generally, you're the expert. Go do your homework, figure out what you need, come back to me with your recommendation. So that's that's my view. And again, it means being super self-aware, I guess, of my my deficiencies. I'm sure I'm not entirely self-aware, but trying to be self-aware of my deficiencies um, and understanding where I can kind of plug experts in. And do you have a favorite recruiting process for this? I don't. And I wish I did actually. (laughs) I don't. I do. You know, I, I would say like what I tend to look for is player coach type of people. I love people who, and this is what's tricky because I think it's really hard to screen for, but people who can come in and make an impact day one because they're just hungry enough and excited enough to do something themselves in, let's say, the first 30 days at Alloy. They pick something, they say, I can tackle this. Then they start building the team and the strategy and whatever. But I think this sort of immediate impact to me is really, really important. Let's just get like, let's set the pace and let's set the tone for our relationship, your relationship to Alloy. I really view at this stage at sort of Series C and beyond and what's to come that we, the primary goal should still remain on growth and speed. And so anything we can do to sort of get you up and running quickly, 
that's what's most important to me. But it's hard to judge. And I think one of the things that's exceptionally hard to judge in our industry is folks who come from large financial institutions, for example, or large consulting organizations, super smart, have really impressive backgrounds. And it's hard for me to judge whether or not they're sort of ready for a startup. That to me, the only proxy I've found other than, of course, references and stuff like that is just can, how enthusiastic are they? There's a sort of enthusiasm level that to me is the only indicator I have that, okay, maybe you spent your career at XYZ Big Bank and you say you're super excited about a startup. That's the only thing I can sort of go off of. And so I have to trust that you're going to be, your enthusiasm will carry you over into dealing with a world of fewer resources and a much faster pace than you know, a big bank. And how about um, those hard decisions that you often have to make as a, as a business leader, right? I mean, how do you deal with hard decisions and what are some of those hard moments or, or tough choices that you've, you've made over the years? We had, like I mentioned, the first four years of Alloy just sort of be on the brink of like going under periodically. Not a lot of good things happened. And there were not many decision points in some ways in those years because there wasn't really a decision to make other than like just try to make the money that you do have last as long as you can. The thing I've tried to optimize for in those long periods of just like nothing good is happening is try to find the small good things that will happen. And I think celebrate those, figure out how to make those carry you on. And for me, that really worked as far as just on a personal level, I was able to sort of keep going because we had enough optimism coming from the few clients we did have, right? The ones who'd say this actually is like a fantastic product or they'd send us a $250 check every month. And that was sort of like, okay, they value it. They, something is here or a client willing to do a case study or, or serve as a reference. That was really powerful. So to me, there were enough sort of good moments that I was able to hang on to those things and that they meant that meant something that sort of buoyed me through the next few years, but it's certainly hard. The decisions we've had to make, you know, I think we've, we have made some hard decisions, but I think ultimately we've tried to orient everything towards our customers loving us and loving the product. So for example, a decision around pricing or something will come down to just like, what can we do that optimizes for customer love? Not what can we do to optimize revenue here? So I think in those moments, that's sort of been our framework for making those types of decisions is in fact, we were even doing our 2022 planning this morning and thinking through some product revenue that we're, we're looking at. And we made the decision that like we are oriented towards usage, customers loving it, serving as references, NPS, like whatever, whatever proxy we use for that doesn't really matter. It's not going to be revenue. And I think we've, we've really made those choices as an organization with that in mind. Got it. Yeah. I mean, last week there was a, a lot of, positive Twitter chatter about Alloy, particularly after your mm-hmm. your funding announcement. And uh, there was one, I forget who, uh, talking about how, I think for your Series A or your seed, you had 100 meetings and everyone said no. And then there was just one investor that came in. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, yeah. That must have been, you know, a, a big moment. Yeah. We got rejected a lot. It's a good reminder yeah, I think it's because things look have looked really good since then. I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have similar businesses, right? Like selling software into financial institutions, for example, or infrastructure. And they're like, oh, you know, Alloy's just how we want to be. I'm like, that's it's awesome. And I'm super flattered by it, but also 
we struggled very hard for four years where no one wanted to invest. So don't do what we did for four years. Um, but yeah, we, we had a hard time in fundraising. I think the world was really different back then. So we benefit now from a ton of luck and a ton of sort of tides just shifting in our direction. I can't overstate that enough. I guess that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is going to be some reflections for other entrepreneurs. And, you know, there, as you've mentioned, there are a lot of aspiring founders or founders who are earlier in the journey who look up to you, yeah. uh, both as an entrepreneur and also as a, as a woman in business, right? As a female mm-hmm. leader. Um, mm-hmm. What are some reflections and I guess advice that you, you'd share with them? Yeah, I think, I mean, like I'm saying, luck, I think, is a huge part of it. So there's going to be a lot out of your control. But there is sort of this idea, which I believe that you can create your own luck by saying yes to things, by being open to a variety of possibilities. So that might mean, you know, I think especially for, for women, that tends to mean network like crazy, right? Your first three customers, five customers, if you're B2B, are going to come from your network. And so you don't want to spend all your time at cocktail parties and no time building, but you do want to understand the landscape well enough to know that if there is someone who's going to be asking for a platform like yours and in the market that they know that you exist. And so finding those channels, I think is really important. I think worrying, don't worry much about sort of scale. And there, there's a point of at which, you know, I'm talking a lot today about scaling challenges, but I think I focused too much on scale in the early days for things like pricing, for things like sales hires or marketing, right? You, you sort of have this idea in your mind, like I need to get to, I don't know what the benchmarks are today, but for series A, it was like a million dollars in ARR. And so then you have, you sort of have this big giant number in front of you and it makes it almost, it sort of um, paralyzes you from making your first 10 K, you know, Instead, with that big number, you're sort of like, well, how am I going to get that? You have to chop it up in all these ways. And you're like, how am I going to get to 30 customers or 100 customers? And so I think you have to just not worry about scale whatsoever. And you just have to say, I'm going to get these first two to five clients live, and I'm going to get them to love me and to reference me and to be willing to do a case study with me. I think that's all that matters in the early days. I think the rest comes for sure. And I think just, you know, optimizing for doing things really, really well. So sometimes, again, that might mean hiring people who have a certain level of enthusiasm and being very hands-on rather than someone who is a, an expert at something. I think that really can go a long way. And I guess when you, when you look back uh, throughout, I guess your career, but mostly your entrepreneurial journey, who would you say have been the most helpful and consequential people? My co-founder, Tommy and Charles, but Tommy taught, I think taught me a lot, for example, about that sort of, um, like he just didn't worry about scale. He was like, give it away for free. I don't care. And I just, and he would spend extreme amounts of time with some of our early customers where I was like, come on, we got to go do other stuff. Like stop talking to them constantly. The other people, I would say Nikki Galimas from Nova Credit. She, I think she just knows how to connect people. She put together a small group of women in FinTech several years ago and that group itself was important for me is sort of like learning about other organizations. We, a lot of us were at similarly sized groups, which means some of us have kind of grown up together in certain ways and people move on and join, you know, get other jobs or go into VC or whatever. But it was a group for me where I got to share very honest, I guess, assessments of what challenges we were facing and, and hear from other people. I think that opportunity to have 
really intimate, honest conversations is pretty rare. And then another person was Aaron Frank. I met him very early on through another investor. And at the time I was trying to sell him alloy when he was building final the credit card but we we became friends he never bought the product um we became friends and he uh was an angel investor and and has, has kind of carried on with us and so he's been great in a similar way where i can sort of share my challenges with him and and um and he has a obviously a great network yeah shout out to nikki Galimis. she was she actually is the one who connected us uh, she was my. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, right about that. She was my second guest at the Word of the Podcast, and then I asked her, like, do you, th- do you know any other that's right rock star uh, women in fintech? Yeah. and you were at the top of that list with along with I don't know six or eight different names. So yeah, most of them ended funny. up joining the show. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. She's uh, I miss her being in the US. Yeah, yeah. Well. Laura, I cannot thank you enough for dedicating this time uh, to us. And thank you. you know, it's always a, a huge pleasure talking to you. And you know, I look forward to just continuing uh, awesome conversations. Likewise. Thanks, Miguel. I hope to see you in Vegas. See you in Vegas. <laughs> thank you, Laura. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Laura. She's truly amazing, and I'm sure we will be hearing a lot more from her and Alloy over the coming years. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the amazing editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.